Great. Thanks, Eric. Keep Titus open, and we shall have a look at that and ask God to speak to us through it this evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We just heard about the word, the message, and the grace it brings us, and we pray that you'll give us soft and open hearts and ears tonight to receive your message and to be transformed and given hope by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, I visited a city in the UK, could have been one of many actually, where lots of churches, and it just struck me the contrast and the similarity between a couple of them. Two you know, large churches, in a sense successful and well attended, um, and yet different at the same time. Um, one preaching the biblical gospel, helping its members to know Christ and to be formed in character, in life by him, to share the gospel. The other... Um, focusing, it seemed at least, very much more on the kind of the quality of the Sunday worship and not much evidence at least of a desire to help people to know how to become followers of Christ and how to become shaped by him, let alone to share the gospel about him. Uh, so, so where does that come from? What helps a church to help its members to, to live what we call a godly life that points other people to Jesus? And especially... What helps us to do that in a culture around us in the UK that's very often quite hostile or at least cold towards Christianity? Those are questions that this book of Titus, this little book, I think is going to really help us with. So the first question really is, um, who is Titus? In verse 4 of our reading, as you saw, they just sit in front of you, Paul says, to Titus my true son in our common faith. So this letter is written to Titus. We'll see he's a church leader, but there's a little bit of backstory with Titus elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, We can see that Paul probably shared the good news of Jesus with Titus as he was traveling around maybe Turkey or part of Greece on his missionary travels. Titus became a Christian. That's why Paul calls him um, his son, He's like spiritually a father to Titus. Then in Acts 18, if you read Acts later on, you'll see that Paul shared the gospel there in a city, a Greek city called Corinth. And it was likely Titus was with him, was kind of the the kind of church planting team. But later on, as they traveled elsewhere, on from Corinth, they heard that the church in Corinth had gone off the rails, both in terms of its doctrine, its teaching, but also its practice, what people were doing, was scandalizing the gospel. And so Paul wrote a very blunt letter to the Corinthian church. And we know from 2 Corinthians, which was not that letter, it followed that letter, that Titus was the one that carried that painful letter to Corinth, with Paul addressing those issues head on. And... In 2 Corinthians, chapter 7 and 8, you can read about Titus there. Titus came back from Corinth, said to Paul, Good news, Paul. They received your message. They've turned back to the Lord and back to loyalty to you. Uh, They've changed their ways. And Paul was encouraged by that, and he wrote 2 Corinthians, uh, the second that we have of his letters to the Corinthians, to say thank you. I'm so glad that you're kind of back in gospel partnership again, let's press on in Christ. And he sent Titus to carry two Corinthians as well. 
So Titus is clearly someone who's both a kind of able pastor, diplomatic, difficult message he had to carry, but also um, a, a courageous guy. Seems like Paul almost trusts him with his hardest missions. Now, we don't know much more about Titus other than this letter, uh, which we'll look at uh, tonight, starting tonight. Uh, We know that at the end of the book of Acts, Paul ends up in Rome in prison. Very likely, he was released from prison first time around, and then traveled around, and probably must then have visited Crete. Not on holiday, as we might today, Um, It was no holiday for Paul or for Titus, but to share the gospel, to plant the church there. And we saw in our reading in verse 5, he's now left Titus in Crete to continue the work for the church there. Paul went off traveling further. He was probably then arrested again and almost certainly executed in Rome. Titus pops up into Timothy at the end, very late again, even later than this, when Paul is kind of saying his farewells, really. And he says Titus had been sent on again to a place called Dalmatia, modern-day Croatia. So that's Titus. And this is a letter to a church leader, therefore, called Titus. And it's asking the question, how can churches help disciples of Christ to live what this letter calls in several places the good life? Not the good life in the sense of the prosperous, wealthy, comfortable life, but the Christian life the godly life, we might say, that looks like Christ. How can churches help each other to do that? That's what this book is really all about. And in case you think, oh, I've come to a sermon all about um, how to be a pastor, how to be a church leader for Titus and for the the kind of the few, have a look at the last verse of the letter. See what Paul says there? At the very end, having written to Titus, he says, grace be with you all. So he clearly expected that this letter would get read out loud and heard and acted on by all of the Christians in Crete, all the church in Crete, not just the pastor, not just the elders. So as we look at that question, how can a church help Christians to become more like Christ and to point other people to him we're going to see there are two building blocks that Paul starts to put in place in these first verses, just down to verse 9 of chapter 1. He'll come back around these in several different ways, but two building blocks, the good news and good leaders. Good news and good leaders. And in verses 1 to 4, there's the good news. If you look at verse 1, Paul calls himself a servant of God And an apostle, that means someone that's been sent, of Jesus Christ. He's saying, first up, that his ministry, his work, is not something he's chosen or taken for himself or seized. He says, I've been sent. I've been appointed to serve God by carrying his message. He calls God, doesn't he? You might have noticed this, saviour. It's against a common word for God in this letter. God our saviour, verse 3. Christ Jesus our saviour, verse 4. And just think about that. It's usual, isn't it, when an organisation runs into trouble that we look for a man-made solution, don't we? So uh, um, a phone company finds its sales reducing, so it produces an upgrade. 
or a football team is not being very successful, so it changes the manager. Paul sees the great need of the human race and the the peril that the church is in, and he doesn't go for a man-made solution, does he? He goes for God. He's the saviour. He's the one that can help, the only one that can help the deepest human need for God's forgiveness and eternal life. And as he does that, as he sees this need for people to hear about God, to pass on that message, he gives us, if you like, a why he's doing this and a how he's doing this. Why is Paul going around the Mediterranean talking about Jesus? Well, he says, doesn't he, um, in verse 1, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect. That's just shorthand for God's chosen people. He's an apostle for faith, first of all. And he simply means, I think, he wants to help people to find Jesus, to put their trust in him. That's all that faith is. It's not magic. It's putting your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And having found him, he wants to help people to grow in their faith, to become stronger in their faith. That's what this letter's all about, how we can help each other trust Jesus more. For faith, but also You might say he's an apostle also for godliness, for helping us live the good life. He says, for the uh, apostle for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Godliness is the goal. Seeing lives change in the likeness of Christ, learning to love and live as Christ lives, that's the goal. And the means, as he says, it's the knowledge of the truth that enables that to happen. As I receive the word of God into my heart and life, it transforms me. It is powerful. Now, some of us here are students, or maybe, I hate to say it, you may have like A-levels coming up soon. Knowledge is very valuable. Don't get me wrong. Human knowledge is very valuable. We use it in all sorts of ways. But... Some knowledge we we receive as human beings, the knowledge on the internet, some of it's not all that important and certainly life-changing. It's just information. Paul is saying that's not the case with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. This has supernatural power, world-changing power, because he says it's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Nothing else changes human lives. Nothing else can change a human heart except the good news, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So that's the first thing, isn't it? He's working towards faith, towards godliness, and he's saying all the way through, his work is about the good news that leads to the good life. The good news that leads to the good life. That's why he's doing this. How does he do this? What's his work all about? What's the means he's using? Well, again, he says, it's the hope of eternal life. See that in verse 2? In faith and knowledge, resting on the hope of eternal life. Faith, godliness, the things he's aiming at, rest on something else. See that there? They rest on the hope of eternal life. That's really just another way of talking about the Christian good news that Jesus died and rose, and therefore, in eternity, not just in this life, there is eternal life available for those that trust in him. The hope of eternal life. And he says, that's what our faith and good life in the present rest on. 
It's the fact that we've set our eyes on the hope God's got ahead of us, on the hope that Christ has walked into in heaven ahead of us in his risen body. That's the hope that drives our faith and God. It's a bit like if you look at a cathedral, you can see this enormous spire, and from a distance you may not see anything else except the spire. But you know, don't you, even though that's the only visible part, that spire is resting on the buttresses, the walls, the foundations, the things you often can't even see. And Paul says, faith and godliness as Christians, it's resting, not on some fragile human foundation, not on the Apostle Paul even, but on the hope that we have in Christ for now and for eternity. And you think, well, how how do we know that that hope is secure? How is it such a strong foundation? Isn't it because of Easter that Jesus has risen? Well, yes, it is, absolutely. But that's not what he says here, is it? You see that? He says, hope is certain because, and if you stay in verse 2 there, it was promised. God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time this hope he would give to his people of eternal life in Christ. It rests on a promise. Imagine, it must have been a a conversation within the Trinity, within God. Because there was nothing else before time. Within God, before time began, he made a promise that one day, all who turn to Christ, all who begin to follow him, will not only receive forgiveness, but the hope of eternal life as well. That's the promise, and it's resting upon God who does not lie. And the reason that we know about it, he says, the reason that he's doing what he's doing is because that promise from before time began has now been revealed. It was hidden before. It was a mystery, but now it's clear. It's transparent for us all. Again, he said, well, of course, what he means is that in the incarnation of Jesus, in the life he led... He made it clear that God has eternal life. He he spoke of it. He taught us. And again, that's true. The gospel, as we call it, the good news, became clear in the life of Christ. But, again, it's not quite what he says here, is it? Do you see what he says? How did the human race hear about the hope of eternal life that was promised before time began? And if you look there, verse 3, at his appointed season... He brought his word, that's just shorthand for the good news, to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. The message that Paul's preaching is revealing the promise to the world now. It was hidden, now it's clear. God promised and God's revealed that promise, that hope in the good news that Paul is preaching. Now, he will say later on what you might expect in chapter 2, verse 11. He says that the grace of God has appeared. So, yes, the coming of Christ is the great appearance of God in human history. He will say that. But right now he is saying that the preaching of the good news is how the world sees Jesus, is how the world sees the promise coming to life. How the world discovers that there is such a thing as eternal life to hope for. It's not a dream. It's not a fantasy. It's a promise that God made and has now revealed. Do you see? 
It's a great, great precious truth. So I guess you might say, well, we can't, can we go to Palestine today and see Jesus there walking around doing miracles, walking on the water? We can't go to the Holy Land and see him walk out of the tomb on Easter morning. Uh, We could have done had we been there at the time, but we can't now. If you want to see Jesus today, you can through the preaching of the good news. When you hear the good news, God in his grace, by his spirit, in that moment helps us to see Jesus and to come to life through faith in him. Good news leads to the good life. It's powerful. I think this matters to us today at least in two ways. Uh, First is this. If you're someone that's looking for a saviour, looking for someone to put your life straight and show you eternity, come to Christ because salvation is found for lost people like you and me, lost people like many of us pray for, when we submit to Christ as our Saviour and Lord and when we renounce, we turn our backs on our old selfish life. That's where you find the Saviour. Not in yourself, not in someone else, but in Jesus. That's salvation. Paul was commanded by God to preach that message, that, to bring that hope to the world, to reveal it. And it's a message that turns sinners into forgiven people. It turns the ignorant into people who know God. It turns ungodly people, me included, towards a life of godliness. And our hearts are, if we're honest, aren't they? They're a hotbed of greed and selfishness and anger and fear and guilt. But Christ is the good shepherd. He's glorious as our bridegroom. He comes to us and calls us to submit to his will, to receive his forgiveness and to live in his hope. That's the message. Second thing is this. We have been given a message to hear, not a manual to perform. So easily churches give the impression that to be a Christian is to follow a whole set of rules, isn't it? We may have been in churches where that was, that was explicitly the agenda, but even in a church like ours, it's so easy to get the impression it's about doing these things. It's not. It's about the message that transforms our hearts that leads us to the good life. You see, our hope is the good news. It's what we hear, not what we do. It's what we receive with our ears, not what we do with our hands. That's the good news. That's life-changing. The good news leads to good life. So that's the first building block, that the good news that Paul has preached, that Titus received and passed on, and that's been passed on through the church gloriously protected by God through the centuries, through the scriptures. That leads to good life. Here's the second thing that Paul says is a building block for a church that wants to help people to live the good life following Jesus. That's simply good leaders. And that's verses 5 to 9. He says, verse 5, the reason I left you, Titus, in Crete uh, was not to sunbathe, but that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, the people of Crete had heard the good news from Paul. They'd heard about that hope. They'd come to new life and they'd responded with faith. 
And Paul had then had to move on, probably for an, another mission trip in another city and another uh, nation. And he left Titus, as he puts it, to straighten out what was left. The work was not finished. Starting a church is not pastoring a church. If you like, in our language today, evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus with the lost so that they may repent and turn to Christ, that's not the end, is it? It's the beginning. It's a key beginning, but it must be followed by establishing young Christians and then by equipping growing Christians to be gospel workers themselves, all of us. It's our vision as a church, a church that makes disciples that make disciples. Calvin, uh, the Reformation pastor, said about this, that the building of the church is not a task so easy that it can be brought all at once to perfection, to completion. Building a church takes time and patience and prayer. And so Titus has been left there to appoint elders to share this task around, to share the gospel. Now, these leaders here, they're called elders in verse uh, 5. They're called overseers or stewards. It could be of God's family in verse 7. Probably similar roles, just different titles. Some have tried to look at these titles in this and other letters of the New Testament and conclude a kind of a, this is the definitive church leadership structure for all time. People talk about elders and deacons and bishops and so on. Paul's not really trying to give us a definitive structure here. What he's interested in is this is the kind of person, the character, to look for in a church leader, particularly maybe a pastor, a preacher, a minister, but also maybe someone that's on the church council as a leader in the church. And if you and I were looking for someone to fill a post, if you've applied for jobs, you would look, wouldn't you, on the CV for skills, experience, and churches attempt to look for someone that's going to be you know, a good preacher, but an administrator, a leader, a charismatic person, all those sorts of things. Paul, interestingly, focuses on character, not charisma, on the role of these people, not on their resumes, their CVs. So he says, if you're with me still in at verse 6, he must be blameless. He means they're uh, not completely without blemish. Uh, because believe it or not, church leaders occasionally make mistakes, apparently. But blameless meaning just beyond reproach, beyond public reproach. Respected, if you like. Uh, he goes on, he says they must have one wife. Again, he doesn't mean they're, um, that single people cannot be church leaders. He simply contrasts saying they mustn't have a series of wives or lots of wives at once, indeed. He must have children who believe and are not wild and rebellious. Uh, So there's something here about being able to disciple a family before you think about trying to disciple God's family. Then in verse 7, he says that this overseer must have, uh, well, must not have five vices or five sinful tendencies and they're all really about lack of self-control in this person in different ways overbearing quick temper 
drunkenness, violence, and that's losing your temper and striking out, and seeking dishonest gain. So lack of control about honesty and finance. Lack of control. Now, interestingly, we're going to see next time, all of those five vices, those lack of control things, they're things that the opponent Titus is facing in this difficult job of leading the church in Crete. The opponents are showing those five vices. They lack control. They are rude and bad-tempered. They're greedy. And Paul is, uh, Paul is saying to Titus, you're just not to appoint people like that as your leaders. Then he moves to the positives, doesn't he, in verse 8. Five vices, six virtues. If you like, these are signs of the good life being lived by these good leaders. So this person is to be hospitable. Literally, it's to love strangers, to love welcoming different uh, new people. To love the good. To, to love good virtues and values in self and others. Uh, honesty, love, forgiveness, and so on. Self-controlled, upright, or doing the right thing. Holy, disciplined. Six virtues. All about the church leaders Titus appoints not being rogue or rebel, but being respectable models of the gospel. Honoring Christ by living Christ-like lives. Modeling the good life as they teach the good news. And isn't it just striking that what matters in church leaders is, first of all, their character. Are they living in some way the good life? He doesn't stop there, does he? After those six virtues, the leading by example, Paul then switches back in verse 9 and adds, if you like, a seventh concern, a seventh thing to look for. And this is about their teaching. The truth that leads to godliness. Do they hold on to it firmly Do they teach it as it's been taught to them? And, he says, not just they need to hold on firmly to trustworthy teaching, but they need also to rebuke those who oppose it. So here is the pastor, the church leader. It's a shepherding image in the Bible very often. And their role is to feed the sheep, the flock of God, God's people with the nourishing food of the word of God. That's my role as a pastor. That's the role of those that lead and teach in different areas in our church family. Passing on the nourishing word of God rather than passing on rubbish or poison so that we, the people of God, can receive it and be nourished and grow in Christ, can live the good life as good leaders teach us how to do that. It's about passing on the nourishing food and not diluting the word of God, um, chopping out the bits that we find uncomfortable that the culture around won't listen to, not doctoring it, changing it to suit what we want to say. Passing on the trustworthy message as it's been taught. So that's things like, it's about the truth of God as our Father, of Christ as Son of God, and now man, fully God, fully man, Lord and Saviour, about the Spirit as the life giver that he's given to the church, the atoning work of Christ on the cross, 
his physical glorious resurrection pointing us to the hope of eternal life. That's the truth that leads to godliness. But as well as that positive teaching, there's also, did you see, the challenge, another side to being a pastor, a Bible teacher, that is to oppose those who teach what's false. To rebuke those who, by their false teaching, divide the church, impose their rules, we'll see more about that as we go through Titus, and snatch hope from the hearts of Christ's people. John Calvin, again, uh, who had a wonderful teaching ministry but faced his own opponents in his church ministry, he said this, a pastor needs two voices, this is a shepherd, two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away thieves and wolves. Two voices. He says the scripture provides the means both to instruct those who are teachable and to rebuke those who are enemies of the truth. So what's a a good leader look like? Well, we've seen, haven't we now? A good leader that leads us towards the good life is not just an example, though they are that, they're also a teacher of the truth. And they're not just a teacher of the truth, they're also a rebuker of error, of false teaching. That means that those that pastor and teach will need to mix sometimes words of authority with a heart of mercy. Prayers for the weak with rebukes for the wicked. So here's what Paul is telling us, I think, today about how we can identify and pray for or aspire to be or be good leaders. Here's one. What to look for in those who lead in church. So whether you're looking for a vicar or for a youth leader, considering small group leadership yourself, maybe thinking about ordination one day, Paul's given us clear measures, hasn't he, to to set against ourselves. Does my life match my teaching? Am I living in some way the good life of Christ, growing in godliness? It's a question that we trust that the panel interviewed for the Bishop of Norwich were asking themselves as they met those candidates, as they met Bishop Graham. It's a question to ask of anyone that we appoint in our church ministries with a teaching role in particular. To ask myself if I'm in leadership or will be one day, am I consistent in my walk with Christ, clear about the Christian truth and courageous enough to confront error when I see it? So it's helpful, isn't it, Titus, for we're going to see this, what to look for in our leaders. But here's the other thing, what to pray for, for our leaders. Because, Karen, I would love it if you pray for us as leaders, pastors in the church here. Uh, would love you to pray for James and Anna Pinto, who will be joining us um, to pastor and lead among us again in a few weeks' time. For all those that lead here, we'd love you to pray for the families of those who lead in the church to be led with grace as well as with truth, with gentleness, as well as firmness, as Paul is saying here. To pray for hearts to be protected from the vices that Paul mentions there. Protection from the temptations of the evil one to ungodly living, 
and for the equipping of the Spirit to live as an example to the flock, the good life. So pray for the lives of pastors and church leaders, and pray also for our message, as Paul finishes in verse 9, that we may teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, the trustworthy message that it's been passed on to us with clarity, with confidence in it, and with courage to correct where we see life or teaching that's not honoring Christ. It's a tough, tough call, this isn't it? It's a very hard ministry to be a church leader. Titus is hearing that. He knows it already, I suspect. And it still is today. So isn't it great that Paul finishes with this reminder that our strength as we minister to each other in church, as we pray for those that lead, rests not on ourselves, but on the grace and peace of God. He says to Titus in verse 4, grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He knows, uh, Titus knows those two things are what will equip him. Grace, that's God's unmerited goodwill towards us, promised before time began, has now appeared in the coming of Christ and the proclamation of the good news. That's the grace that we rest in. And the peace of God which restores us to him when we were his enemies through what Christ did on the cross, frees us from our sins and also binds us to one another in peace as members together of his family. Let's pray for those things now. So we thank you, Lord, for the people that you've given us to help us to hear about your grace and peace. For those who've taught or pastored us, those who just pointed us to you, even if we're still searching. We thank you for Paul and Titus and the courage of their ministry, which in one sense is so long ago, but in so many senses is still powerful as we read your word today. Please make us those that base our faith on the firm foundation of the hope promised before the beginning of time and revealed in Christ and his good news. And help us to be those that don't keep this message to ourselves, but find opportunity and courage to tell the world about it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.